This is the Forming Our Faith podcast, the newest podcast in the Diocese of Tulsa. And I'm Deacon Kevin, the Director of Formation and Education at St. Anne in Broken Arrow, the older and the smaller of the two parishes in Broken Arrow. I invite your questions or comments and feedback as we go along in this podcast, as well as your continued interest in what we're trying to do through it. Tulsa is earning a sterling reputation in the digital Catholic world, and I'm excited to be a part of that. What is the that that I'm excited to be a part of? Well, Bishop Condorla and Adam Minahan have Tulsa time. Father Sean O'Brien has deep dives. Fathers Kerry Wakulik, Brian O'Brien have Pastors of Pain. So we're building a robust family of podcasts here in the diocese. One of the best Catholic speakers in the English-speaking world today is, in my opinion, a priest from Michigan named Father John Ricardo. He's involved in what's called Acts 29, an apostolate that challenges Catholics to imagine themselves as continuing the drama of Acts of the Apostles when the original disciples of Christ spread the gospel into a hostile and uninterested world. I bring this up because we're going to finish this episode with the idea of witnessing to the gospel even in a world that doesn't want to hear it. The motto for Acts 29 is, remember, you were born for this. And that's kind of like the motto of forming our faith, which, which comes from Pope St. John Paul II. Never ever settle for anything less than the heroism for which you were born. Last week was the pilot of this podcast, and now we're on to the second episode. I don't know if there's a special or dedicated word for the second episode of something, so I'll invent one. On a freight train, the tender is the car that follows directly behind the locomotive and carries the coal that has to be shoveled into the furnace. I guess that makes this the tender episode of Forming Our Faith. Last week, I explained why this podcast exists, where it came from, and what we're hoping to do with it. And I said that since I started in this position two years ago, lots of people in the parish have told me that they want to know more about the Mass. So the first series of episodes will focus on the Mass. But I, I want to insert a word of warning about that, and it's a warning that I'm not always sure how to get across to people. People have told me they want to know more about the Mass, and I'm happy to do whatever I can to help them to know more about the Mass. But it's not like knowing a little more about the Mass is automatically going to cause you to love the Mass more or make you want to participate in it more. It's good to want to know a little more about the Mass, but that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be to appreciate the Mass more and to give yourself in worship of Almighty God more. My title in the parish at St. Anne is Director of Formation. It's not Director of Information. I can flood you with information, but if that information doesn't somehow contribute to your formation, its value is negligible at best. The heart of our faith as Catholics and as Christians isn't the acquisition of knowledge. It's the communion of persons that happens when I am united with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when I share their very life and am completely changed by God's grace. Information leads to formation, leads to transformation. That's the pathway of what we're trying to do, what the Church is trying to do when she forms the faithful. I was a high school teacher for almost 20 years, 
And one of the big errors I saw teachers and students and parents making over and over was the confusion of information with knowledge and knowledge with wisdom. Merely possessing information doesn't necessarily mean one has knowledge, and merely possessing knowledge doesn't necessarily mean one has wisdom. There's an order to these things, and there's great danger in equating them with each other. What I saw in a lot of my students was that they conflated even merely having access to information with knowledge and wisdom. And what this confusion meant was that few of them had knowledge and fewer of them have had wisdom because so many were content merely to possess the information. But once they had it, they had no idea what to do with it because they didn't know they had to do anything with it. It's easy to fall victim to this kind of trap. We live in a period of human history when there has never been more information available to us. It's at our fingertips and can be delivered almost instantly. And I'm going to show you some of my nerdiness here. My college degree is in mathematics, so I've always been captivated by numbers. And I'm going to share some staggering numbers with you. The ancient Greeks built libraries to house the amassed knowledge of the world. I've read estimates that if you were to digitize all of the text in the Library of Alexandria, one of the ancient wonders of the world, it would total about 12 gigabytes. That's a lot of data. How much text is on the internet? About 64 zettabytes. That's 64 trillion gigabytes. That means your cell phone or your computer has the ability to access more than 5.3 trillion times as much information as was stored in the ancient library at Alexandria. You would need almost 214 planets with the same surface area as Earth to build that many libraries of Alexandria to hold all that data. I can't even say think about that for a minute because our, our brains can't deal with quantities that large. We can't fathom things that exist in the trillions. I used to ask my students without dragging out their calculators how long a million seconds was. And they'd guess for a while, and then I'd tell them, it's around 12 days. Then I'd ask them how long a billion seconds was. And again, they'd guess for a while, and I'd tell them, it's almost 32 years. A trillion seconds is 31,710 years. So right now, reading everything on the internet would take you 169,000 years. That's not just a lot of information. That's a tsunami of information. And when things get that big, we can and do get overwhelmed and fatigued by it. And having access to so much information can be like having access to no information. So part of what I'm doing in forming our faith is to try to cut through the mountains of information that's out there so you don't have to try to climb that mountain by yourself. When it's difficult to know where to begin, there's the danger of simply not beginning. But there's more to it. I don't want the mass to be just information to you. I can talk for an hour a week in these podcasts about the mass, but if what I share with you is just information, we're kind of wasting our time. Part of the plan here is to help form intentional disciples who are conspicuous in knowing, sure, but in living their faith, in allowing their faith to direct and guide and orient their lives so that in their lives they decrease and Jesus Christ increases. 
That's what you take away from the Mass if you're living and praying the Mass the way the Mass is meant to be lived and prayed. You understand yourself in the same way John the Baptist did, that everything you can contribute is only for the glory of God. And what's more, you're delighted to give all you have to glorify God because that's what you were made for. And what's even more, you find perfect fulfillment in glorifying God because that's the only way we can attain perfection. Last week on the pilot episode of Forming Our Faith, I didn't actually get to say much about the Mass because I wanted to set the scene for the celebration of the Mass. While Mass can be celebrated almost anywhere, the liturgy has its own proper setting where it should be celebrated, the church building. Yes, you can have a Mass in a home or in a convention center or a baseball stadium, but the Mass is at home in a church. And this is because the church itself is a sort of visible gospel, a gospel in stone and wood and glass. The building itself participates in the worship of God, at least when the building causes us, through its careful construction and design, to glorify God. So last week, I talked a little bit about the traditional shape of the church and why that's significant. I also said something about the statues or images you see in Catholic churches and the difference between using images in worship, with Cat which Catholics do, and worshiping images, with which Catholics do not do. Today, I want to continue more of the stuff you see in church, so that the next time you see these things in church, you've got a greater appreciation for how the church is a carefully constructed tapestry that's meant to show us the Lord and his love for us. But before we start, I have to make a point that will hopefully make the construction of the church and the different actions of the Mass make more sense. And here it is. The Mass is not a theatrical production. The priest and other ministers, the cantor, the choir, are not performers, and the assembly is not an audience. If we're participating in the Mass the same way we participate in a play, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong because at a play, unless you're an actor or in the orchestra or working the lights or you're an usher, you're a spectator. You're watching someone else do something, and you're doing it ostensibly for the purpose of entertainment. That's not why we go to Mass, to be entertained. And we're not spectators at Mass. Everyone in attendance at Mass, from the newborn baby to the priests to the angels and saints that surround us as a cloud of many witnesses, has a participatory role in the Mass. We all have something to contribute, which means that we are not spectators. We're not just sitting there watching. There are actions we have the responsibility to do, and if we don't, the Mass is somehow impacted. The heart of the liturgy in the Catholic Church is the worship and glorification of God. We come to Mass not principally because of what we get out of it, but because we have the opportunity to put something into it, and not really something, but someone, ourselves. We come to Mass to worship God as an act of love because God is God and deserves our worship. We owe worship to God. I know a lot of people chafe at the idea of obligation, but part of the church's job is to say difficult things. It is an act of justice to go to Mass and to participate in the worship of God. And if I don't, I'm causing an injustice. 
Justice means to give to each that which is their due. And because God is due my fealty and worship, in justice, I must give it to him. And I get it. That can be an uncomfortable thought that I'm obliged to God. But remember that God is not a tyrant who longs to punish us. He's a loving father who longs to be in union with us. We come to Mass to be in communion with the God who created us lovingly. God created the universe with a word and brought each of us into being, but he doesn't force us to be united with him. We can choose otherwise. Going to Mass and participating in the liturgy is our choice to respond to God's love with our own love. This is especially important to remember when we're tempted to think that the Mass is somehow wanting or deficient when we don't get out of it what we'd like. Christ promises us that in the Mass we receive him, regardless of how we feel about the Mass or whether we like it or not. If we have given of ourselves in Mass the way we're supposed to, the graces that follow aren't dependent on our sense of fulfillment or satisfaction we get from this particular Mass. I'll talk a lot more about this when we get into the Eucharist, but I need to point out at the beginning that we don't leave Mass the same way we leave a theatrical performance. A play might be good or bad depending on the quality of the performers, but Mass isn't like that. Mass is always good because it is always the worship of God by the people of God. The particulars of the Mass, the preaching, the music, the community, should be excellent because we always want to give to God the very best of what we have and are. But even if the preaching is dull, or the music is dull, and the community dull, the Mass is still what Jesus promised it would be, a full sharing in his very presence. The actions of the Mass take place in two principal locations within the Church. The Mass itself is divided into four parts, and we'll be diving into the depths of these parts in the coming weeks. One of the parts is the Liturgy of the Word, when we hear the Word of God proclaimed to us from Scripture. Another of the parts is the Liturgy of the Eucharist, when we get a glimpse here and now of Jesus' sacrifice of himself at Calvary. Each of these parts of the Mass has its own location, and you'll see these in every Catholic Church. The ambo is the place from which the word is proclaimed during the Mass. A lot of people will call it a lectern or a podium, but the proper name for where this happens is the ambo. It can be tempting to think of this as merely a piece of furniture that's there for convenience, but there's more to it than that. All Christians, Catholics included, understand the Bible to be God's word. Think about that for a second. To call sacred scripture God's word means, in some sense, that it comes from God and belongs to God. I'm sure we'll have an episode of Forming Our Faith about the Catholic understanding of the Bible, so I won't follow that trail or flesh that out just yet. But now, I'll just point out that when we read the Bible, we are reading something that comes from God. When we hear the Bible, we're hearing something that comes from God. And if it comes from God, there's a sacredness and a solemnity to it that other things, things that don't come directly from God, don't have. We proclaim the word of God from an exalted place because we want to emphasize that what's being proclaimed is exalted. Its source is exalted. In a lot of old churches, like ones in Europe, this is made really clear. The ambo is not just a place to stand, but a place to climb. 
with stairs and a raised platform so that what is being proclaimed is done from a greater altitude. If this word really came from God, hearing it proclaimed from God's point of view is a powerful sensory experience. The Catholic Church's norms state that the ambo must be located in keeping with the design of each church in such a way that the ordained ministers and readers may be clearly seen and heard by the faithful. Preaching also, also takes place from the ambo, which is meant to apply the scriptures we've heard to the lives we live here and now. I'll talk a lot more about this when we get into the Liturgy of the Word, but preaching is a terribly misunderstood thing. It's not exactly teaching like in a classroom. It's not exactly a speech that's given by some person of prominence. It's not exactly a persuasive argument that's given by a political candidate. It's definitely not a set of jokes given by a comedian or a bunch of tales spun by a storyteller. Its focus is Jesus, not the preacher, and how Jesus, through these readings that are proclaimed in every Catholic church throughout the world, calls us to greater faithfulness. For bishops and priests and deacons, preaching is a solemn task, so pray, please, that we do it worthily and well. The altar is the focus of the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and you'll see an altar, and a prominent one at that, in every Catholic Church. An altar is not merely a table, and if you pay attention to the way the altar is treated during Mass, it becomes clear that it's not just a table. There are facets of the liturgy for which the altar functions as a table, but the fact that we call it an altar and not a table tells us something. Tables can serve all sorts of purposes, but an altar has only a religious function. An altar is a place of sacrifice. It happens a lot in the Old Testament that someone has an encounter with God and then builds an altar there. The altar wasn't a reminder just that someone had an encounter with God on that site, but to offer sacrifice to God who the person encountered there. So when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham builds an altar. When Moses is told to make a place for the Israelites in the desert to worship God, Moses builds an altar. Altars are the location of sacrifice. And if there's anything that's clear about what this entails, it's that things that are sacrificed die. The fact that we have altars says something about what happens in Catholic churches during the Mass. There is sacrifice. Forming our faith will go into this in a lot more detail and depth in a few weeks, but I can sketch out the generalities now. At Mass, we witness the same sacrifice of Christ, made originally upon the wood of the cross at Calvary, the Mass is not a new sacrifice, as though every Mass sees Christ sacrificed anew. It's the representation here and now of that sacrifice that won us our salvation. If the altar is the place of sacrifice and the Mass presents us with a sacrifice, then the altar is an essential feature of the place where we celebrate Mass, the Church. The Church's legislation about the construction of Church buildings has a lot to say about the altar. And this isn't just ritual fussiness. If what we believe about the Eucharist really happens at Mass, then it should happen on an appropriately sanctified and solemnized place, a place which is central within the Church and towards which the Assembly's attention is naturally focused. 
One of the ways this can best be accomplished is by making the altar big and putting it in the middle of the sanctuary. I don't think anywhere in the general norms for the liturgy is the explicit instruction that the altar should be big, but we tend to notice things that are big, especially when they're at a place of prominence. The overwhelming preference in the Catholic Church is that the altar be permanent. Wherever it is, it shouldn't move once it's there. It might not surprise everyone to hear this, but the Catholic Church has a ritual for every stage of construction of a church. Once the piece of land has been leveled and the workers are ready to start building, the perimeter of the church is marked in lime or chalk in the dirt. And where the altar will stand is marked by a simple wooden cross, literally two pieces of wood nailed or tied together in the shape of a cross. That cross is planted in the ground where the altar will be as a sign that they are the same reality. The altar in the church is the cross of Jesus Christ when the mass is being celebrated. The top of the altar is called the mensa, and the mensa should be made of stone. Not just any stone, but natural stone, stone that has been taken from the earth. This means the mensa should not be made of concrete or cement. These things resemble stone and have stone as elements, but they're not natural. Here in the United States, given the wide variance in geographical and topographical features in our country, the bishops have permitted that an altar can be made of dignified, solid, and well-crafted wood as well. Usually, you don't see much of the altar itself because it's almost always covered. Except for a few days a year, the altar will be covered with a white cloth. What's more, the altar might be draped with a cover in the color of the liturgical season or the saint being celebrated on a particular day. This means that most of the time, you're not really seeing the altar, but its outline and, and its shape. Maybe you've had no reason to think about this before, but it's a question worth considering. Why? I'll propose this isn't just because colored cloths look nice or because the altar needs to be hidden to make it look more substantial than it really is, but that there is a liturgical and sacramental significance to it. During the Mass, what our eyes see as bread and wine, and that holds true regardless of whether we see it at the beginning of Mass or when we come forward to receive Holy Communion, my eyes perceive bread and wine. But during the Liturgy of the Eucharist, the priest speaks the words of Jesus himself, This is my body. This is my blood. Our ears have heard something our eyes cannot grasp. That host I receive is not bread but is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It is not merely what it looks like, and the physical appearance is masking a reality that the eyes do not perceive. I think something like that is going on with the altar. What we see of the altar doesn't look exactly the same way it really is. The work of our faith, the attempt to understand more completely and deeply, is to contemplate that what has been told to us about the Eucharist has been spoken by Jesus Christ himself. And even though I might not see him, I trust that he is fully present. This happens quite a bit in the Catholic Church. Things are veiled, and their deepest being is somehow withheld from our eyes. What is being veiled is precious, and to behold it runs the risk of getting used to it, or even worse, getting bored with it. Veiling the precious is a way to preserve the preciousness of a thing for our eyes. 
to make a kind of analogy. When they get married, women typically veil themselves. The sight of his wife should always be precious in her husband's eyes, and it would be a tragedy for a husband to get bored with the sight of his wife or get so used to the sight of her that he doesn't notice her loveliness anymore. When things are covered and we cannot just look at them whenever we want, the brain comes to understand, and pretty quickly, that this is a thing we should want to look at, but that we should be cautious. This thing is so desirable to behold precisely because it is so precious. If the altar is the cross of the Lord, then it is the most precious artifact in all of the material world. I spent a lot of time talking about the altar, a feature of the church that might not seem like it deserves so much attention. It's nice to know what things represent and what they're used for, but okay, how much do we really need to say about them? The answer is, well, quite a lot. Remember, one of the goals for the Forming Our Faith podcast is for your next Mass, the next Mass you attend, to be the best Mass you've ever intended. Your encounter with Jesus in that Mass, the most intense and the most personal you've ever had. Your love for God and for His people greater than it's ever been. If you know that the altar is the place of sacrifice and that it makes Jesus' offering of Himself upon the cross present here and now, that makes a central truth of our Catholic faith almost immediately available to you. Jesus Christ died for you. The offering you see being made upon the altar during Mass wasn't made for some vague notion of humanity. It was made for you. Jesus Christ, pierced and lifted up, endured his passion for you. We talked about the crucifix during the last episode, and if we say as the Church does that what happens on the altar and what happened on the cross are the same event, the same reality, the same sacrifice, then it should be clear. Christ is on the cross for you. His bruised and bloody body is given up for you. That's the essence of every Mass, the re-presentation of Calvary. The same body of Christ that died on the cross is given to us as food, and we should receive this awesome gift with reverence and thanksgiving. In every Catholic Church is a place where the Eucharist is reposed, hosts that have been consecrated during Mass which are kept in reserve for the purpose of adoration and for distribution to those who cannot attend Mass because of illness or infirmity. This is the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place God designated where he would reside when he came to the people of Israel. While they were still wandering in the wilderness or when they came into the land of promise, the tabernacle was a tent in which the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The Ark was a wooden box covered with gold upon which God would sit when he dwelt with his people. It was his throne. When the temple was built in Jerusalem during the reign of King Solomon, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, the ark was contained in the innermost room called the Holy of Holies, which to Jews was the most sacred place on earth. Our understanding as Catholics sounds very much the same notes. In the tabernacle dwells God himself. Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity dwells in every tabernacle because the tabernacle is where the Eucharist is kept. The Church holds that the tabernacle should be positioned in a part of the Church that is truly noble, prominent, 
conspicuous, worthily decorated, and suitable for prayer. The idea here is that at times when Mass is not being celebrated, the faithful know where the Eucharist is being reserved so that they might come and worship the Lord in his Eucharistic repose. In many churches, that means that the tabernacle is right behind the altar, or at least in the middle of the sanctuary. In others, whose design might make putting the tabernacle in the middle difficult, the tabernacle can be located in an adjacent chapel, but this chapel should be connected to the church and readily noticeable to the people. The Eucharist is not an item to be stored, and the tabernacle not just a place to store it. It is the Eucharist is a living person, and the tabernacle his glorious and majestic dwelling. Near the tabernacle should be a lamp, which is always lit. This is also an image from the Old Testament. When God came to dwell with his people, his sensible appearance was as a column of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. In the nighttime darkness of the Israelite camp, when you saw the flame over the tent of meeting, you knew God was present. It's the same in Catholic churches. When you see the sanctuary lamp, you know that Jesus is there. In a great majority of Catholic churches, especially here in the United States, you're going to see pews. It might be a surprise to learn that this was not always so. For a long time, when Catholic churches were built, there were few permanently installed seats. There might have been a bench along the perimeter of the church for elderly parishioners for whom kneeling and standing were difficult, but most of the faithful knelt or stood during the Mass. The first pews began to show up in the 1200s, and the universal presence of pews is a relatively recent phenomenon in the Catholic world. Benches or pews were found in the ancient world in synagogues where Jews congregated, but they're also found in courtrooms. And there's something to this. In a courtroom, the legal guilt or innocence, culpability and responsibility of a defendant on trial is tested. Pews are in a part of the court called the gallery, and this is where spectators sit during the trial. It's also where the cited witnesses sit until they're called to testify. But remember that Mass is not a performance, and those assembled at the Mass are not spectators. So if we're in pews, pews are in the gallery, and we're not spectators, that must mean that we are witnesses. So imagine this courtroom scene. You're on the witness list for a trial, and the person on trial is Jesus Christ. The charge is that he is Son of God and God-made man. And as a witness, you're being asked to give testimony about whether that's true or not. Do you believe him to be what he's charged with being? Remember, Jesus was on trial. Witnesses did testify about what they thought Jesus was. When you're in church at Mass, you're in the same position those witnesses, Peter and the temple authorities and the crowds in Jerusalem, were. Their testimony was perjury. Will yours be? Indeed, we are witnesses. We were made so by and through the waters of baptism, empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim and testify to the faith we've received. But here's the thing. And it's a humongous thing for Catholics who strive to live our faith both within the church building and without. We await our call to give our testimony, 
And we don't exactly know when and where that testimony will need to be given. Testifying to the faith might happen in our families with those who have never heard the gospel or who have forgotten it. It might be in our schools or workplaces where we come into contact with people who perhaps have never encountered a person who's striving to live a fully integrated Catholic life. It might come in our neighborhood with the person next door. It might be, and this is real for a lot of Catholics in the world today, and it could be for us, in front of a magistrate or judge or military official whose questions about our fidelity of Christ could merit a death sentence. The Greek word for witness, someone who testifies in a trial, is martyria, and it's where we get the English word martyr. At every Mass, sitting in pews is a reminder that each of us will be called to the witness stand somehow, and the job of a witness is to tell the truth, to tell the truth of Jesus crucified and resurrected, to tell the truth that real freedom comes only in life with him, to tell the truth that human pleasure and satisfaction and wealth are not the highest goods for which we were made. To sit in a pew is to remember that I am called to be a martyr. It might not be a martyrdom of blood, but I should be prepared for that. It might not be a martyrdom of suffering, but I should be prepared for that. It might not be a martyrdom of alienation and rejection, but I should be prepared for that. And Mass gives me the graces to be able. I think in a lot of ways, we can be numb to the situation of many Catholics in the world today. At the school where I used to teach, the students would give every week to collections for the missions in Peru. In the mountains of Peru, there were communities of Catholics who got to see a priest for a few days every year. Their villages are so remote and so hard to get to that a priest has to spend long days on the back of a burrow, traveling through the mountains to reach them. And there are so many of these little villages that the priest can only stay for a few days before he has to set out for the next little village. The priest would spend all summer traveling like this until the autumn and winter snows come and the mountain roads and passes are impassable. So imagine people in those little villages who get to attend mass once or twice a year, who get to go to reconciliation once or twice a year. They give witness to their faith simply by keeping it, even though they don't get to participate in the liturgical and sacramental life of the church that often. But there's something else, too. The estimate today is that throughout the world, 360 million Christians live under some form of religious persecution, where their livelihoods, civil rights, and sometimes their very lives are at risk. That's about as many Christians as the entire population of the United States. That's about 4% of the total population of the world. One in 25 people. One in 25 people in the world are Christians whose witness to their faith daily brings them into contact with discrimination, exclusion, and the possibility of death. I opened this tender episode of Forming Our Faith by mentioning Father John Ricardo. He's got a great knack for saying, simply things that are profound, and he's a fine storyteller as well. In a talk he gave in a parish mission I heard being broadcast over the radio, he tells his story about a young man with whom he studied when he was in the seminary. He was studying in Rome, and in his seminary were young men from all over the world. After a break one year, one of his peers didn't return, and he asked why. 
and he learned that this young man who was from Bosnia had been kidnapped and told by the kidnappers that he had to renounce Christ or else die like Christ. The young man refused, so his kidnappers nailed him to the floor. That seminarian gave his life as a witness to the truth of Jesus Christ in his life. A simple word would have secured his freedom, but this young man knew that his freedom would have been purchased with a lie. He did believe in the lordship and divinity of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Father Ricardo told this story as an example of the witness each of us needs to be prepared to give. And let's be honest, that's hard. It's hard to say that you need to be ready and willing to give everything for Jesus Christ. It's easy to imagine that we would do it if it came to it, but we need to pray right now for the strength of Jesus Christ himself when and if that kind of time comes for us. Remembering all of this while we're at Mass, in church, in pews, is important because it reminds us that the Catholic life we live is not one directed towards our comfort or pleasure. It's directed towards Jesus Christ. And if no slave is superior to their master and Christ is our master, we can't think that we won't end up the same way that he did, and he ended up crucified. This has become a theme in my preaching over the last few years, especially when the church celebrates martyr saints. Just a few weeks ago, the church in Oklahoma celebrated and remembered our native-born martyr, Blessed Stanley Rother. When I was a teacher, I loved telling the stories of the martyrs to my students, and I still love telling their stories today. It's important for us to make friends with the martyrs. And I think this is so because soon, if not already, we're going to have to beg for their intercession because we're going to be faced with the same choices that they were. That might seem like a somber thing to think during Mass. And we haven't even really started talking about the Mass itself, except in broad terms. But I think it's absolutely necessary. Our culture has grown from one that at least tolerated the Catholic Church to one that openly loathes the Church and much of what she teaches. In issues of marriage and family, sexuality, economics, politics, education— the vision of the good the Church has received from the Lord is dramatically divergent from that that has developed in the culture in which we live, and we're fools if we think those differences won't cause conflicts. We hope and pray, of course, that conflicts can be peaceful and that those in conflict with each other can still treat each other with civility, but we've already seen the Church as the recipient of violence. Since May of 2020, there have been over 360 attacks on Catholic churches in the United States, ranging from petty vandalism to attempted murder and arson, including one in our cathedral here in Tulsa, where a man attacked a security guard with a sword and tried to set the cathedral on fire. It could happen here has already happened here, and I'm sorry to say it's likely to happen again. So the question has to be asked, and is asked every time we enter the church to celebrate the Holy Mass, are we prepared to keep our faith and testify to it even in the midst of violence? For the ancient church, just attending Mass was enough to merit a death sentence, and it's still like that in some places. We can't presume that we're immune from the experience of 360 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the world today, and countless others in the past both recent and distant. I heard a priest giving a talk about religious persecution once, 
and he said there have been more Christian martyrs since 1900 than there were in the first 1900 years of the church's existence combined. That ought to give us pause, and it might give us fear. But in some other words of Pope St. John Paul II, echoing those of our Lord, be not afraid. Remember Father Ricardo's motto, you were made for this. Being a witness to the power and love of Christ in a world that has rejected him, that's your purpose. You were made to do exactly that. The testimony to a hostile world, the witness of faith, even to those who oppose us, the truthful confession of Christ as Lord, even if it costs us our heads, that's what we were made for. That's the heroism for which we were made. And that whole reflection comes because we happen to sit on pews when we come to the church for Mass. I think this realization has the power to shatter many of the falsities we've come to believe about the Mass. Not just that its value is what we get out of it, or that we're there to be entertained or moved, but also that the Mass is a nice religious observance that we endure and then get out of the way for the next week. We've lived for a long time under the notion, and it's a mistaken notion, that our faith is a matter of personal preference, like the kind of deodorant we use. Our faith is a private affair between me and God. The Catholic faith is not private, and it's not personal. It's a badge we wear on our chests, and a living word we proclaim with our mouths and our lives. If my faith moves me for one hour a week, and the other 167 hours of the week it is of no import, I have to question the value of that faith at all. As Catholics, we understand that our faith is not just something about us. No, it is us, because through that faith, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and through me. Jesus as Lord isn't just something I believe, it's something I'm commanded to share with the world so that others can have the same treasure that I do. Mass isn't a nice thing, it's a revolutionary thing. It's my pledge of allegiance to Christ the King and my oath of fidelity to the Lord and Master of the universe. It's my promise to give to God what is His right, and it signals my desire to receive what God died to give me. It's communion with the saints who made that pledge and oath and promise and desire during their lives and now behold the face of God for eternity. It's food for the journey and strength for the fight, both against the evil that lurks in my own heart and that which prowls throughout the world. It's our muster as foot soldiers, our rest as weary pilgrims, and our glory as saints. It has the power to change the world and to change everyone in the world. It's what you were made for, and don't surrender it, one sliver of it, or settle for anything less than the heroism for which you were born.